Good morning, church. If you're online, welcome and good morning to you also. Uh, One of the unique privileges uh, that I have as a pastor is uh, the opportunity uh, to officiate weddings and to walk with couples through the pre-marriage process. And in a typical summer, I have anywhere between five and ten weddings. So I have a lot of opportunity to invest in couples who are planning and preparing for that process. And one of the things that I invite them to think about is how brief the wedding ceremony is. Do you ever think about, I mean, you spend lots of time and energy and resources planning for the wedding day. And when it all comes down to it, the wedding ceremony is pretty short. You know, it's like 25, maybe 30 minutes. And and what I, I know as the pastor is they don't want me to preach a long time, right? So I've got a short window to make a good point. Um, and, and sometimes I like to have fun with this idea. Um, case in point, I did a summer wedding. It was about 100 degrees, you know, South Dakota humidity. Everybody's sweating through their jackets. And I had my Bible and I went up to the father, the bride, and I said, hey, do you think, should I, 45 minutes for the sermon, is that, does that seem too long? And he looked at me and he's like, are you serious? I said, no, I'm just messing with you. I said, I'm going to preach like 10 minutes, right? But it's, the, the ceremony's short. But we spend all this time, energy, investment for that moment because we want like the perfect Pinterest, Instagram-worthy wedding and reception, and we want it all to go perfect. And what I try to encourage couples in is, listen, don't just build the fairy tale facade. Make sure you've laid down the relational foundation that that whole ceremony is built on, right? Because you are going to be married in an instant, but you will spend the rest of your life working out the implications of that commitment that you're making, right? So, I mean, case in point, I would have told you going into marriage, like, I feel like I'm a pretty selfless person. I feel like I'm going to do pretty well at this marriage thing. And then I get married and I run headlong into my own selfishness. How about you if you're married? Uh, For example, I hate sharing my food, right? Like my plate is like a sovereign domain. What I decide, like what I order, what I put on my plate is there because that's exactly what and how much I wanted, right? And then I get married and we go to dinner and I order a steak and my wife will order a salad and I'm cutting in the best, like the best part of the steak. And she'll look at me and go, can I have a bite? And part of me, like the less holy part of me is like, listen, we need to have a conversation about consequences uh, because... (laughs) You ordered salad. That's on you, right? You, you get no steak because I ordered exactly what I wanted, right? And then like begrudgingly, and she can see it on my face. I'm like, yes, I would love to offer you a bite, right? And it's like, I'm giving out of the joyfulness of my heart. And in like one simple, really dumb way, like that's indicative for me of what I wrestle with week in, week out with marriage. It confronts my own selfishness. But here's the beautiful reality of that. Culture wants to reduce marriage to happiness, And I I say reduce because it's not that happiness isn't important, but culture says the primary purpose of marriage is to make you happy. Now, when the primary purpose is to make you happy in marriage, what happens is two broken people enter the marriage relationship and they're both asking the same question. How can you serve me? I want you to fulfill me. I want you to make me happy. I want you to meet my needs. The problem is that makes marriage about me. And if there's one thing I know about my own brokenness and my own sinfulness is that does not drive me to want to love my wife well. What I want to suggest to you is that biblical marriage and biblical relationships are not about happiness. They're actually about our holiness. That marriage is the context. It's the relate, one of the relational contexts in which God is going to uh, allow us to practice what it is to live out 
Christ-like love and sacrifice. And what happens is when marriage becomes about our holiness, rather than saying, how can my spouse fulfill me and complete me and make me happy, we enter it with this, how can I serve my spouse? How can I demonstrate the love and the grace of Jesus Christ to them? Because it, it brings to mind the reality that that is a sacred relational context in which we live out what it means to live and love and serve in the image of Jesus. And so what I want to do this morning as we uh, enter Ephesians 5, is I want to look at biblical foundations uh, for the marriage relationship. What is it that we should be building our lives on? Because uh, so much of culture is the fairy tale facade, right? It's the picture of having it all together, and yet behind the scenes, things are not good. And so how do we build on the right foundation? Now, as, as we head into Ephesians 5, we have to remember the context of the rest of the book. I know it's been a couple weeks with Easter and everything in the middle, so let, let me recap this for us. In Ephesians 1, Paul writes this letter to the church in Ephesus, and he says, I'm just really thankful for what God is doing in your church. In chapter 2, he says, I remember, and you should recall how you were dead in your sins and transgressions when you were far from Jesus. But he says, God, who is rich in mercy, has made you alive with Christ. And he says, you're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And he talks about how the church at Ephesus has been redeemed, how God has a purpose for them. And then in Ephesians 3 and 4, Paul says, I pray that you'd be rooted and established in Christ's love. And then he begins to teach about what it is to live as a holy people. And so really, Ephesians is about identity. Who are we in Christ and how do we live that out? Now, in Ephesians 5, Paul gets really, really practical. And, and I love this about Paul's writing, that he gets right to the heart of the matter and he begins to answer questions like, what does your faith in Jesus have to do with relationships? And, and the big idea for today that I want us to settle on is this, that the redemptive work of Jesus has the potential and the capacity to transform all of our relationships as we recognize that it's not just about happiness, it's about our holiness, it's about becoming the kind of people that God would call us to be. And I think marriage is one of those relationships that has the profound uh, possibility of being a transformative relationship. Ephesians 5.21 is where we pick up today. There Paul says this. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. His body of which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blem blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, this is one of those passages that any time this is read in a public moment of, of worship— I feel like there's just nervousness. Like, how do we do the submission thing? Wives submit, and we're nervous about uh, how does culture perceive this text? But what I want to suggest to you is that what Paul is describing here is beautiful and redemptive and transformative. And, and right away, we want to go to that verse 22, wives submit to your husbands. And we get so fixated on that that we miss the whole context. 
The, the first relational foundation that Paul talks about is in 521. It's submission, for sure. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But notice that's not even in the context of marriage yet. When you read the first half of Ephesians 5, you find that actually Paul is ta- talking, at least in part, about body life in general. He's talking about in all your relationships, submit to one another. That there's to be this mutual reciprocal relationship of submission. And anytime you enter into a relational moment, if it's going to be reciprocal, if it's going to be a deep relationship, there has to be an element of mutual submission. And, And to submit, what we mean is to place oneself under the leadership, influence, and responsibility of another. It means giving up control for a moment. So think about this with me. Have you had a conversation with a person and they drive the whole conversation and never engage you? Have you had that experience? Uh, and, and, you know, the conversation starts and they just, boom, they blast away at you for a half hour, 45 minutes, and they never ask you a question. They, they never ask you about yourself, your day, and, and, and you never really offer anything. You just listen. Would you describe that relationship as reciprocal? No, right? You're, you're just, you're listening. They never engage you. They never give you an opportunity. See, mutual submission is about giving up control. It's about giving up the agenda of that moment. It's truly and sincerely engaging the other person and allowing them to have influence in that moment. Mutual submission, I think, is, is a bedrock foundation of any reciprocal relationship. But part of the challenge of this, right, is that submission comes with a negative connotation. When I read the word submit, how many people had like, positive thoughts, right? As soon as I said the word submit, we think things like to submit is to lose, to submit is to mean I don't have control anymore. We we often don't have a positive connotation with this idea of submission. And yet biblically, this idea of submission is actually a really good and healthy thing. You see, submission is going to require some things of us. Um, I think number one, submission is going to require a surrender of our agenda and control, it means entering a relational moment and meeting and, and recognizing I don't get to set the full agenda for this moment. I need to engage the other person. I need to ask them about themselves. My needs are not the only driving force in this moment. And it means giving up control. I don't know about you. I don't like giving up control. The older I get, the more I'm realizing I like the idea because the illusion of control feels like safety. I, I can manipulate things. I'm in control. I can do things the way that I want. And yet submission says in the midst of relationship, give up control and sincerely engage the other person. Invite their agenda into the moment. Think about and reflect on and be attentive to their needs in that moment. Which means that submission is also going to require us to deal with our own sin. The reformer, Martin Luther, he said that sin has a way of causing uh, life to curve inward on itself, right? And when we are given over to our sinful nature, our life does become about us. It becomes about my needs. It becomes about I want what I want. But when we're redeemed and when we encounter the transformative work of Jesus, our life begins to turn outward on itself. And so if we're going to practice this idea of submission in reciprocal relationship, it means I'm going to have to deal with my own sin and my own selfishness. Ooh, I don't really like that idea, right? There's some things in myself that are broken. I'm like, I'd really rather not deal with that. And yet I know that as I give myself over to the redemptive work of Jesus, it's going to result in redeemed relationships that are more healthy and good and right. And I think submission also uh, requires vulnerability. It means opening myself up to another. That is really hard sometimes to be vulnerable. 
And so as Paul begins this writing, he says, submit to one another. And, and I don't know why I've never, I, I never paid much attention to the last part of that verse. I always looked at this. I got stuck on submission. But what's interesting is the why of submission. Paul says, submit to one another. What? Out of reverence for Christ. That part of how we honor Jesus is living a life of mutual submission. And what happens is that submission is a way of honoring Jesus as we follow his example. Jesus, as we watch his life and ministry, he lived a life of submission. He submitted his will to the will of the Father. Philippians 2 tells us that he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. F.F. Bruce, the scholar and theologian, I'm going to put this on the screen for you. He said this about Ephesians 5.21. He says, Christians should not be self-assertive, each insisting on getting his or her own way. No, he doesn't mean that you can't be assertive at all. What he means is we're not the kind of people who walk into a room and go, it's about me, it's about my agenda, it's about getting what I want. He says, Christians should not be self-assertive. He says, as the Philippian believers are told, we're to be humble, to count others better than ourselves, and to put the interests of others before our own, following the example of Jesus who emptied himself, who humbled himself, who became obedient to death, even when the path of obedience led to death on the cross. That is powerful. And once we understand the framing of that, now Ephesians 5.22 takes on even greater significance. Where Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands. And now he launches into this example of the marriage relationship as a relational context in in which this idea of mutual submission takes place. But as, as we read that passage, in my mind, there's all kinds of questions. Number one, wives, why in the world would you want to submit? Doesn't that seem like a position of weakness, of of, of loss? Uh, What makes submission possible? And it's funny because from my perspective, this is the part in the sermon where I see a bunch of husbands like nudging their wives. Like, did you see verse 22, right? But when we understand the context of this, I think what we're going to find is what Paul is describing is beautiful, right? We see submission and we wrestle with what does it mean that the husband is the head of the wife and, and, and how in the world can I submit? But we have to understand the fullness of what Paul is describing. You see, what makes submission possible in this context is number one, that submission is mutual, It's submit to one another. It's not that the wife is only submitting to the husband, right? Paul is not saying to the wife, you just have to be passive and do whatever your husband says. No, this this position of mutual submission is one of mutual trust. It's to say that I trust my husband and his leadership enough that I can trust my life and my care and well-being to him. Now, where it says, wives submit to your husbands, uh, just as the church submits to Christ, because Christ is the head of the church, what does that mean? When we talk about Christ being the head of the church, when you read the rest of Ephesians 5, you see that that what that means is that Christ is the chief caretaker of the church. We, We think of leadership immediately in terms of power and authority. But what you see in the life of Jesus is that he uses power and authority for service, And so the other thing that makes mutual submission possible is that the husband as part of the church is also living in submission to the word and to the way of Jesus Christ. And recognizing that his role is the chief caretaker as the leader, one of his primary calls is to take care of and to invest in and to be attentive to the needs and, and, and the well-being and the flourishing of his wife. So read verse 25. And and, and I want you to reflect on this question. Who has the greater burden of submission here? Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself 
up for her. Whew. Let me, let, me, let me read that again. Think about the significance of what Paul is saying here. Husbands, love your wives in the same way, following the same pattern of Jesus Christ who laid down his life on the cross. Right? And Paul says there is the context of, of submission. Think of the example of Jesus. Philippians 2, I think, is, is very uh, appropriate here. Y'all's attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And Paul says, husbands, in the same way, that is the pattern of how you were called to love your wife. So here's what happens. Submission of the wife to the husband is possible because the husband is laying down his life in a self-sacrificial way that seeks above all to serve his wife under the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ. Are, are, are you following me? Right? This, this is in no way providing room or space for the husband to lord it over the wife in a domineering, abusive way. That is the exact opposite of what Paul is calling for here. Right? He's envisioning this beautiful, redeemed relationship of mutual submission and trust and service and sacrifice. So the second foundational component I think we see in the writing of Paul is, is one of selfless love. To recognize that we are called to love in a way that reflects the love of Christ. And that husbands are called to love their wives following that example that Jesus has laid out for us. And, and here I think it's important to uh, rightly define love. Because what I find is that cultural uh, definitions of love tend to focus on uh, sort of intense emotional feeling uh, of desire and affection. Right? We, we almost uh, reduce love to like the feeling of butterflies in the stomach, the romantic affection for. And so as I work with couples in relational uh, uh, moments, whether it's to prepare for marriage, whether it's in a moment of marriage difficulty, I often hear this kind of language. People will talk about, well, you know, we, we fell in love, or, or maybe when things are difficult, they'll talk about how we fell out of love. And part of me, like in fun, I step back and I'm thinking like, fell into, fell out, like, was this a pit? Was it a trap? Like, what, what do you mean fell? Because, because think about the conceptual framework. When we talk about falling into or falling out of, it says, well, it's haphazard. I, I just sort of stumble into it. But biblically, the concept of love is not just feeling. It's not just emotion. It's not just something you haphazardly fall into. A biblical definition of love is a decisive commitment that language is significant. A decisive commitment to live with a self-sacrificial giving of oneself for the flourishing and the well-being of another. And I think we see that in the life and the example of Jesus. And that is what Paul is calling husbands to model here. You're to love your wife in that same way following that example. And it becomes incredibly countercultural. Now, I think... We, we look at a passage like this in this language of wives submit and husbands love and, and partially we look at this and we go, well, if we're honest, that doesn't really fit the cultural narratives of our day, right? The language of wives submit to your husbands, uh, if I said that outside of this room in, in the middle of just ordinary things, people would say, well, that's backwards thinking. What are you talking about? Like that, that, that's repressive. It's oppressive. But what Paul is describing here was fundamentally revolutionary in the time in which he's writing. 
And in the first century Mediterranean world, women were often not allowed to own property. In the first century Mediterranean world, the testimony of a woman was often not valid in court. Many of the judicial systems in the first century Mediterranean world treated the woman with the rights of a minor child. And what's interesting is, is as you read the secular culture, the secular philosophers, the Greek and Roman philosophers, they will describe the role of the wife to be loving and subservient and sacrificial to their husbands. But what's so revolutionary is what Paul writes here about husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and laid his life down for her. You would never see that in any other ancient writing. And Paul, what he's doing is he's turning the marriage relationship on end and he says, husbands, your call, husbands, your role and responsibility is to lay down your life in service and sacrifice for your wife under the submission and lordship of Jesus Christ. That is significant. And this is not oppressive. This is actually liberating. Because a relational context, a marriage where this is taking place, It's one of mutual service and submission and trust. And it provides a firm foundation rooted and built on the redemptive gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that opens up marriage to a new level of flourishing in the way that God intends. Let me read for you uh, 1 Corinthians 13. When we talk about defining love, let let me just read this for you. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels... But do not have love. I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have faith, if I have the gift of prophecy and have and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body over to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Paul says, if I can do all these wonderful things, but I don't have love, it's annoying. It's pointless. It doesn't amount to anything. But listen to what he says. He begins to describe love in verse four. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. Love is not proud. It does not dishonor. It is not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. And it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Here's my concern with this passage. This is one of those passages that we like to see written on inspirational signs. It's often read at weddings. And we become so familiar with it that we stop being scandalized and offended and challenged by the truth of what Paul is saying. When you think about your marriage relationship, does the love that you have for your spouse, does it reflect this? Are you patient? Are you kind? Do you never dishonor? Always trusting, always protecting, always, always hoping. That's beautiful. Love never fails. Do you notice Paul doesn't say, oh, uh, but here's, here's the out clause. There is no out clause. He says, love never fails. 
There's, there's no breaking point, right? doesn't mean you're not going to encounter hard or difficult moments. You will. You're going to have those challenging things. But love that is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ reflects this patient, kind, other-oriented, always trusting, always hopeful, always honoring kind of love that changes and transforms and revolutionizes the way that we do relationship. And church, this, this, this fundamentally matters because we have the opportunity to bear witness to the truth of the gospel by the way that we engage and do relationships. The third foundational component I think we see in Ephesians 5 is the sacrificial service. And it's to recognize that mutual submission is also a call to mutual servanthood. It's to be attentive to the needs of the other person. And it's to say, it's not just about my agenda, but it's asking, what does my spouse need? How can I pour into? How can I invest in them? And listen to the way Paul describes this. In, in verse 28, he says, in the same way, following the pattern of Christ, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. And there's that language of, of Jesus caring for, nurturing, investing in the church, investing in you and I. And Paul says, in the same way, husbands, you are to care for and nurture and pour into and invest in the flourishing and the well-being of your spouse. This is a place of incredibly self-sacrificial service. I don't have it figured out. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. Every week, I feel like there's something in myself, selfishness that I come into contact with where I have this dilemma of, okay, am I going to serve my spouse here or am I just going to do what I want? And and often, do do you experience this if if you're married, that there's often moments where your needs are at odds. And and it's hard in that moment to be self-sacrificial and to be attentive to the needs of the other person. One, One of the real practical ways um, the, my wife and I have tried to practice this is often on our day off, we ask ourselves two questions and, and they're simple. The first is, what do you need? And there's something really helpful about just giving voice to what we need. So often, um, when we have this conversation, I will say something like what I need today is I need an hour by myself, right? I have been talking to people all week and investing in people. I need an hour where I can literally just sit and stare out the window if I want. And then I want an hour where I can go to the gym. I can go for a bike ride. Like, I just need to decompress. And and for my wife, she might say something like, what I need today is I want to go grab some coffee, work remote for a little bit. And then what I need is for you to help with the laundry. And part of me is like, oh, I hate laundry. I hate folding. That's like my least favorite thing. But then our second question is this, what's our plan of attack? So we ask, what are your needs? And then we literally sit down and make a plan. Like, okay, for the first two hours, go do your thing. When you come back, let's tackle laundry. And those two questions have been really, really helpful for us to get at this idea of sacrificial service. Because often even just expressing what we need is hard and we just don't talk about it. And so we live in frustration of those things. And believe me, I, I'm not going to pretend to be Dr. Phil. I don't often do not get this right. Right? I'm not a marriage guru. I, I'm... I'm simply doing my best like you to push into this teaching of Paul, to live out this idea of of submission, of love, and of sacrificial service. But here's here's the question. Even as I'm reading this, right, you're looking at this, okay, mutual submission, uh, selfless love, sacrificial service, and in the back of our minds, if you're like me, I'm going, okay, this doesn't really seem possible. 
right? How, how in the world do we do this, right? Because I, I feel my own selfishness all the time. Like, how, how do we actually push into this? Actually, one, one time I, I was doing a wedding. Uh, I wasn't officiating the way. They asked me to preach uh, the message portion at another church. And I literally preached this very passage. After I got done, the pastor who was officiating the ceremony, he stepped up and he goes, well, that was a pretty idealistic version of love. Like he, he totally wrote it off. And I was like, um, that's not idealistic. That's what the word of God says. Right. And he, he, here's why I say this. Listen, Paul does not describe this as a pie in the sky ideal that can never be reached. Paul writes this as the everyday reality of how relationships and how marriages should work. And if Paul is going to call us to this, I have to think it's possible. And here's how I think it's possible. Number one, the gospel has to be at the center of our marriages. Right? I, and let me, like, let me take off the pastor hat, right? Because as a pastor, that's what I have to say, right? Like the gospel. I tell you that because I believe it. Because one of the primary places where God challenges me day in, day out to walk out the gospel that I say I believe is with my family. The gospel has got to be at the center of your life. It's got to be at the center of your marriage because it's the redemptive, transformative work of Jesus that makes this possible. Now, the way that Paul says this, here's the second way, is we have to be rooted and built up in the love of God. And this is what Paul prays for the church in Ephesians chapter three. Let me read this for you. Paul says, I pray that out of the glorious riches of God, that he would strengthen you with power. I love that line, strengthen you, that God would literally give you the power by his Holy Spirit so that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. Think about the mind-blowing reality of that, that when you believe in Jesus, he lives in you. The Holy Spirit empowers you to this. Verse 18, that you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep. And so Paul prayed in verse 17, he says that you would be rooted and established in love. Notice that Paul uses two metaphors. To be rooted is to recognize that your ability to love others in a sacrificial way is rooted, draws life and strength and nourishment from the life of Jesus Christ. This isn't the kind of thing where Paul says you should love sacrificially, good luck. No, Paul says in, verse, in chapter three, verse 17, root your life in Jesus. And then he uses the second metaphor. He says built up. That word built up in the original language literally means to set down a foundation on the love of Christ. That we are to be rooted and established, founded, held firm in the love of Christ for you. And so one of our primary responsibilities, if we're going to have healthy marriage, uh, healthy marriages is to root and establish our lives in the love of Jesus Christ for us to be changed and transformed and redeemed by the power of the Holy Spirit through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it is his power at work in us that empowers us to submit and to serve and to love sacrificially. It's not in our own strength. It's redeemed, transformed, set free. Now here's the beautiful reality. Did you notice at the end of this passage, Paul quotes Genesis 2. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And he says, this is a profound mystery. In other words, Paul says, something, says there's something so beautiful that happens in that marriage moment that he can't even put words to. It's a profound mystery. He says, but I'm also talking about Christ and the church. Here's what I want us to understand. Living out these relational foundations in the context of marriage 
means that our marriage relationships become a living parable of the redemptive possibilities of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That one of the ways that we proclaim the hope of Jesus into a broken culture is we live it and model it right with the people that we vowed our lives to. I, I think there's something really beautiful about that. That your marriage with your spouse is a living parable. It is the living story of the gospel empowered by God's grace about what love and transformation through Jesus Christ can look like. That's why what Paul is saying here matters. And it's not just idealistic. This is the standard to which Paul calls Christian marriages to. I want to leave you with two points of application. The first is this. I would encourage you to reflect on 1 Corinthians 13. And, and honestly, I, I sometimes just take that and I, I just ask myself, I turn it into questions. Love is patient. Am I patient? Am I kind? Have I dishonored my wife this week? Have I uh, honored her actively? And, and just turn those into reflection questions about your relationship. The second is this. Use Ephesians 3:16 uh, through 20 as a prayer for your life. Asking that God would empower you to love your spouse well, to love others that you're in community with well. God, would you help me to be rooted and established in your love that I might find the empowering to live and love and serve and submit in a sacrificial way. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that the work that you did on the cross, Jesus, in laying down your life means that transformation, being changed, being redeemed, being made new is possible for us. And Father, as we see this example that Paul gives us for marriages, this idea of submitting to one another, this idea of, of selfless love and sacrificial service, God, there's part of us that looks at this and it, and it feels like a, a, an impossible challenge. And yet, Father, I pray that Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 would be true of us that we would be rooted and established in your love. That we would be just in awe of the love that you have for us. That you would strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner being. That we would be set free to live out the gospel in our relationships. God, we're in awe of your love and of your grace for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.